Turn with me now to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens a womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month Abib. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you. Nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the male shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand, and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, and God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is truly perfect. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It has the power to go even into the deepest, most inner parts of our being and to expose all the lies and sin therein. 
and to impart life to those who are dead. And, Lord, who is sufficient for such things as to wield it rightly? But, Lord, we pray that you and your goodness, as you have made provision for your people, a continual provision that ministers are to be the ministers of this new covenant, to be those who proclaim the words on your behalf, how we pray, Lord, that you would do in accordance with your good promises an appalled preacher and illumine all those who hear to your glory and to their good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after so much time uh, relative to the rest of our series uh, that we spent in Exodus chapter 12, we now come to Exodus chapter 13. Of course, it is only right that we spent a lot of time in Exodus 12 because of the density of the events, of the theological significance of these things, uh, and, and beyond that, even as if we had spent twice as long, still we're, we're not done uh, with the Exodus. We could not be done. The Exodus was the single most significant event in the work of redemption until Christ. And all the Old Testament is in one way or another looking forward to it and mainly uh, looking back at it in remembrance and memorial. And, of course, through these things, eventually looking forward to Christ because as great and as magnificent a work as this is, as significant it is, as, as large as it looms, it's still only a shadow and foretaste of the great work of redemption to be found in Christ. Anyhow, even this event is so great, so significant, it must be covered in more than one chapter, and it must be covered from multiple angles. And if chapter 2 was mainly an account of how it happened, of the event itself, perhaps, Chapter 13 is mainly about remembrance, about the provisions that God was going to put in place that this would never be forgotten by his people. And let me say now in the larger picture that God is glorified in the things that he does inherently. Uh, God himself is infinitely glorious and nothing can really add to that. But as he does his great works, there is more glory added by the intelligent reception of these things, understanding of these things, and of the return of worship from his people. And that, beloved, is actually why we exist. We are created by God to be worshipers, to, to witness the events of redemptive history and to return thanks and glory and worship to him. And the angels as well. That's, that's what... Uh, Edwards calls this class of beings intelligent beings, and we have our existence precisely in order that we might return glory to the living God. And this being our purpose, then obviously it is not sufficient that God simply gloss over in a couple words, and then he brought his people up out of Egypt, and we move on to something else. Again, the, the, the event itself, hugely significant, but it is sort of like as we have continually work on our, our sound system and tweak it in various ways. My weak voice here, and it is being amplified and, and broadcast. Um, and indeed, it lives on in our website and on and on and on. Um, and, and this is the way it is, of course, far, far more so. We pray that the word of God indeed would be broadcast all over this world. Um, but in the larger scheme... God and all of his works, you see, 
are these things that ought to be remembered by his people for all time. And therefore, God sets in place the machinery. God sets in place the instrumentation and the means by which these things would be remembered by his people and that worship and honor and glory would be rendered to him uh, throughout all generations. So as we move then from how these things happened in time and now to the things by which they should be remembered. And the crux of this chapter is to be found in verse 3. And Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. There it is. Remember this day. And God puts in place some mechanisms to do it. First of all, the consecration of the firstborn. From henceforth, among God's covenant people, until the coming of Christ, until That very day, that very hour that we mentioned this morning, until that hour, all these things were absolutely in place. But when Christ's hour came, something greater transcended them. But until that point, among God's people, every time that there was a birth, not merely among uh, of, of women, but a birth among animals, and it was the firstborn, the one that opened the womb, this would be consecrated, dedicated to the Lord. Either the animal itself would be sacrificed, or if it was a very significant animal like a a donkey, and particularly if it was a human being, then it would be redeemed at a certain price. And all this would be done when that happened, when someone asked about it, the answer would be because of the exodus, in order that every time that one of these events took place, there would be a reason to remember it. Now, he also, another, uh, so this instrument should be, in some sense, good enough. But beyond it, he has the feast that we already know of, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also the Passover. And that year by year, there would be the greatest, the most important of all the feasts of the Jews would be this one to remember the Exodus and the Passover. So they could never forget it. And in both of these things, to add to it, God sets in place the means by which they would, this would be perpetuated. Not just that for one generation they would have this feast, and for one generation they would consecrate the firstborn, but rather that he would set in place a tradition so that one generation would instruct the, nu- instruct the next, so that forever there would be a memorial, forever there would be reflection upon God's great work of redemption, and that he would be glorified, and indeed the people would enjoy the benefits of this remembrance. So the title is Remember This Day, that's what it's about, and with these three points. With firstborn, with feast, and with tradition. With firstborn, with feast, and with tradition. So, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. What does consecrate mean? Well, it means to sanctify, it means to set apart, it means to hallow. And what it implies by this need to sanctify every last one of the firstborn is that absolutely everyone should have been subject to that tenth plague. You remember, that's what it is. By by rights, every last firstborn should have lost his or her life, his, his life in particular, there in the land of Egypt. And that included the people of God. 
But as God in his mercy and grace has spared the firstborn of Israel, he now claims particular ownership over them forevermore. It is mine, he says. So we should so the consecrating of the firstborn. And this is for the purpose of an ongoing instrument of remembrance of the Exodus. Because in verse 11, explains, It shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. Ongoing, not just now, but when you come into this land, the great land of promise in which you've been let go, let, uh, set free of and, and brought into the land, then you do this forevermore. Now, as I mentioned in verse 13, uh, for all the lesser sort of animals, then they were to be sacrificed to the Lord. If it was a lamb, it itself would be the sacrifice. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. So the uh, donkey's being the equivalent of cars and having a much sort of lower rate of reproduction. These are very valuable animals that don't come around every moment. And God in his mercy and grace says, well, no, you don't actually have to sacrifice that one, but you can put a lamb in his place. And what do you know then? So every time you got in your car, as it were, your donkey to ride around uh, in the promised land that God had given to you, you would be reminded that this one was redeemed at the cost of an innocent lamb. Reminder then, a perpetual reminder. You couldn't get away from the instruments of memorial that God had set in place in this. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Of course, God did not intend that they should have to sacrifice their sons, but rather that they should be redeemed again in terms of an animal sacrifice. Not particularly said, but more than likely, again, uh, a lamb. And what is the net effect of all this? That the people never again take their own firstborn for granted, but rather understand that their, their presence with him is a special provision of a gracious God. Each and every time that they interact with their firstborn son, that they should think to themselves, this one could have been sacrificed This one could have been among those who were put to death by the angel of death, but rather he has been redeemed. And he would give thanks for this work. He would give thanks for this redemption, for this Passover. And again, as I say, even among animals, as with donkeys, that the presence of the firstborn with him is not a right, but rather is a provision of a gracious God to his people. Now, in this, let me say that there is particular relevance, of course, uh, for children. In 1 Samuel one we're reminded of the words of Hannah as she returns Samuel to this place where she'd once prayed for a child. And she says in 1 Samuel one O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I ask of him. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. And so they worship the Lord there. And it's so poignant, so powerful. And this woman who had so long prayed for a child and, and not been granted, but finally then been granted, she lends this child to the Lord. 
Well, this consecration of lending, and we see we know the career of Samuel indeed was a very blessed one, but a reminder that there is nothing more precious indeed than one's firstborn that we can give. And the idea then of consecrating it to the Lord is a powerful one indeed. What more than you can imagine the principle of some event by which we make uh, remembrance of. Now, I'll, I'll mention again Remembrance Day to come, but we buy little poppies. I've left mine at home, I'm afraid. I'll make up for it next week. Um, but we've, we have these poppies, and they don't really cost much, do they? They don't cost much at all. But what if instead we were reminded of the goodness of God and his work of redemption by something that was the most precious thing that we owned? It would be something, therefore, that we would never, ever forget. Because it is, as a man's, where a man's treasure is there, his heart is also. We know that principle. And the things that are most important are the things that are most to be remembered. Well, beloved, this is what God set in place by his instructions, that the firstborn should be consecrated to the Lord in remembrance of the exodus. Well, God said to remember this day with firstborn, and secondly, with feast. And Moses is in verse 3, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month Abib, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, the Lord always emphasizes those nations. Why? Well, remind her that this is not their original land, but rather belong to these pagan nations, the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, Jebusites, pagan nations, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land not their own, but one given of God, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. So that when things are well with them, they would not forget God. Because, friends, we know that this is the story of their lives, the the story of our lives as well. That when things are bad, we come crawling to God in our great need, and we beg him to take away the things that are causing us great distress from the, the deadly trials that have come our way, the trials for ourselves, the trials for our children, the trials for our our husband or wife, our parents. And when he does things, when he does so, and all is well with us, we are likely to forget him. Well, he wants to make sure that we don't. And so when we are brought into the land flowing with milk and honey, he says, all the more so, all the more so then, you should keep this remembrance. Because that's the point in which you're going to be liable to forget about me and the good things that I've done to you. It's, going, it's, not, it's not so much for now. Yes, they had kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread even now. But they didn't need any particular reminders because it was all very, very fresh and impressed in their minds. But in the future, there would need to be a memorial, and therefore the Lord gave them this annual feast. Unleavened bread, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten among you seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. 
Well, we've already spoken of the significance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, it is a picture of the fact that sin is to be removed from God's people. Leaven is a picture of sin. The removal of leaven not only from the bread they were eating, but also from the house as a whole uh, is part of this picture of the redemption, of the perfection, of the work of salvation that God has given to us. And that the gospel is not just that we are saved from the penalty of our sins, but also that we are saved from sin itself. And that God in his goodness removes sin from us and makes us to be more and more sanctified. But the emphasis here, of course, is not merely that it happens, but that it is a work that God has done, and therefore we are continually memorializing this. Now look, if it's something that we do, of course, then we don't need much of a memorial to it. But the focus of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is that this work is something that God has done for us. And so, likewise, even as we think, we reflect upon what we've been saved from in terms of our justification, being saved from the wrath of God, friends, we ought to remember and give thanks to God for what he has done in the work of sanctification. So few of us ever do that. I don't know if you've noticed. But rather, we are so liable to slight the work of sanctification in ourselves and in others and are ungrateful for it. And liable to forget it altogether. If you are the Lord's, then you are the subject of his personal handiwork upon you. And it's an amazing thing indeed. The, the individual work of sanctification he does. No two of us are alike, you know, in that way. God deals with us perfectly individually. In fact, that's one of the great marks of sanctification as opposed to justification. We are all justified in precisely the same way. There is no difference at all. But in terms of our justification, he deals with us individually as with masterpieces. He deals with us as a master craftsmanship using all the, the yes, the fire of trials and of the particular word of God in different ways. Different sermons actually reach people in different ways, you know, because this is the way God intends it to be. This, this whole sermon may be, there may be just one little point there that God has for you. I don't even know about it, but he does. And in the work of the Holy Spirit, that's the stylus. Sometimes that's the hammer and chisel used to make you into the image of Christ. And all of us will have the image of Christ perfectly, but yet in different ways. Yet we'll still look like ourselves in the new heavens and the new earth. And still perfectly distinct with our own histories as God makes the wonderful diversity of his people uh, as he intends them to be. My friends, what I'm saying by this is that we should never forget the work of sanctification among ourselves or in each other. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. By the way, let me just say here from year to year that it is annual. Now that's important. Important things we give annual feast days too. But you know what? It's not quite as important as something that happens more frequently than that. That's a point that Matthew Henry makes on this, which is to say that's why the Lord's Supper is to be done frequently. We remember the work. The Israelites remembered the Passover. They remembered their salvation from death. They remembered this work of sanctification among them. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they remembered that every year because it was important, very important. But not as important 
as the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not as important as a resurrection, which is so important. It bends all of time around it. And the day of the Sabbath could not have remained the same. And rather it is, is changed now to the first day of the week. And rather than have an ordinance that is only done once per year, it is done, in our case, monthly. And we should be reminded of the great significance of this work. Well, we remember, God wants us to remember this with firstborn and with feast, and thirdly, also with tradition. In verse 8, you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. He's speaking. This is the relation. This is the account of how he is speaking to his son, a father speaking to his son. When I came up from Egypt, it shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you up out of Egypt. So this whole thing, it's already been said. Those words have already been uttered, given to us in Scripture. And the whole thing is essentially repeated on the lips of the Father, virtually verbatim, to emphasize the need that this memorial be transmitted verbatim to the next generation without loss. Right, now, those, both of those aspects are very, very important. First of all, that it be transmitted, and second of all, that it be transmitted with perfect fidelity. And we fall down sometimes on both of those things. But, again, just to, to emphasize, it goes on in verse 14. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? Again, these events are designed that children would ask about them. That you shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that, are open, that open the womb, but of the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And so both in terms of the feast and in terms of of the consecration of the firstborn, there are explicit directions of the Lord that these things be transmitted verbatim to the next generation. Do you know what this is? It's called tradition. Tradition. Now, tradition has a bad name among Protestants. And too easily we have conflated, confused, brought together wrongfully two things that are different. All right. One is human tradition, the other is God's tradition. Human tradition in the church ought to be rejected. All right? If it's just something we've come up with, then we ought to get rid of it. But that doesn't mean that tradition itself is a bad thing, not at all. Tradition, traducio, is to hand down something. Right? You have it and you, tra- you transmit it. It's, it's actually kind of the same root there, transmission, or particularly to, to, you, you transmit something. This is the way that we, as a propagating covenant race, were all, we were always designed to be this way. That one generation would instruct the other, and one would carry on in these ways as they were given. This is God's ordinary plan for us. Again, as, as Protestants, we are likely to, to throw out tradition as if it is entirely bad. It's human tradition that's bad. God's tradition is good. And as evangelicals, we are likely to emphasize the idea of bringing people from the outside in that we forget that this is not the ordinary uh, means uh, in in its most essence, in 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 its essence. That God's ideal plan is that one generation follow the next up until Christ returns. And that the church continually get bigger and bigger and bigger as each and every one of God's children uh, keep the faith of their fathers. 
Now, we are thankful in his goodness that in addition to this means, which is entirely sufficient on its own, that he extends out to the outside world, those who are not part of his covenant, and says for them, yes, you can come in as well. And we as a church should always have equal emphasis on both of those things, on God's covenant children, covenant nurture, and also then of bringing in those from outside. Anyhow, tradition is not a bad thing. It's commanded of God. It just needs to be his tradition. And let me say that Jude 1.3 says this, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's, that's that word. It has to do with tradition. This is the faith that was once delivered and is handed down by tradition. You understand that. Right? That, the, the, that the Christ gave it to the apostles, and the apostles gave it to the next generation, and the next generation, and so forth. It has been handed down from one generation to the next throughout all of history. Now, periodically, the church has needed reformation, as we will celebrate next year. But the fact is, is tradition nonetheless. God's tradition, as he intended it, from one generation to the next. And we should never, ever forget the good things that God has done. Well, we should remember this day. And here are some applications. First of all, we need to think about Christ, the firstborn. Because if the firstborn indeed belongs to God, like everything else, this should make us think about the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said God wanted us to remember the work of the Exodus because it was the most stupendous and important thing that had yet happened. But even the exodus itself was moving forward to point us to Christ. And that is exactly the situation of the consecration of the firstborn. Because that makes us think about Christ who also was a firstborn. Matthew one twenty five, And she had brought forth her firstborn son and, he, and called his name Jesus. Reminded that the Lord was the firstborn of Mary. And he was most certainly consecrated to God, wasn't he? But he was also more than that. He was the firstborn of the Father, a point that is made in Hebrews 1. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my, my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. He is God's, the Father's, firstborn. Can we say that? Yes, we can. He's the only begotten of the Son from, of, of the Father from all eternity. That is orthodox theology, the only begotten Son. And in time, he is the, the, the firstborn of, of the Father, you see. And he is beyond that, firstborn over all creation. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things consist, the firstborn over all creation. And, and even beyond that, then, he is the firstborn of the dead. And that he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. What a thought of Christ being the firstborn of the dead. Truly, he was the firstborn over all creation. 
But he came precisely in order that he might die. He took on a human. He was firstborn of Mary in order that he'd have a, a body that he could lay down as the Lamb of God in order that he could die. But friends, he did not remain in the grave, but rather he is the firstborn of dead. Now, what does it mean that he is both the firstborn of, of God and also that he is the firstborn of the dead? What does that mean? What does that imply? It means that there are others to come. Because not in the sense of being the eternal, uh, eternally begotten of the Father, but in terms of being the firstborn, there are going to be other sons of God, you understand. In fact, the Word of God makes it clear that all who believe are given the privilege of being the sons of God. He's the firstborn, and he has many, many brothers and sisters, and that's you and I. And though he indeed was the firstborn of the dead, meaning that he was the first of the resurrection, the resurrection has already happened in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's merely the first fruits. He's the firstborn of the dead. There are many others who are about to come from that as well. And again, that's you and I. He's the firstborn, but many others are going to come from that. Well, we should certainly think about Christ and worship him as the firstborn. And second, I want to talk about the paradigm paradox between rights and thanks. A paradox is a situation in which the more you have of one thing, the less that you have of the other. And that's the way it is with rights and with thanks, right? The more people assume that something is theirs by right, the less thankful that they are. Have you ever observed this? I'm sure you have. And that can be true of people at the bottoms of society and people at the top of society. Those who think that the government and or other people simply owe them everything without no matter what they do or what they don't do. Or those at the top who think that all their wealth and their privilege are completely and absolutely earned and every last thing that they ever get is something that properly uh, is, is theirs by right. Now, these sorts of people are not and cannot be thankful for what they have. How could they? Because they believe it's theirs by right. Who do they have to be thankful to? When all they think is that the government has carried out their contractual rights or the company has carried out their contractual rights, there's no one to be thankful for. They only have their due right. Now, what about the God's kingdom? What about us? Is there any spiritual equivalent here? I think there, there might be. What about those people at the bottom of society who think that, that, that everything that they have is their right because the government owes them no matter what they do or they don't do? Well, I think that's like the antinomians who figure that God has to be gracious to them no matter what they do or what they don't do. And so they live however they want to. Or on the other hand, maybe like the Pharisees who are absolutely convinced that everything that they have, their good estate is because they've earned it so wonderfully in their legalism. They have kept things wonderfully, and therefore, they don't have anybody to thank. You see how that works? The antinomians aren't really thanking God because they're convinced that God couldn't do otherwise than what he's done. And the Pharisees aren't thanking God either because they're convinced that they've really earned everything that they have. And God is only doing what is just in giving them good things. And neither of them are thankful at all. Friends, we have to lay aside those things. We have to lay aside these things. If we have anything, this is what the paradigm shift is. We are moving from a situation of those who think of the world in terms of rights, rather to, to us who think of the world in terms of privileges 
in terms of things that we did not deserve, that we have, and therefore that we should give thanks to the living God for. What is it that we have? What, what benefits do we deserve by right? What benefits? Nothing. Not a single one. And what is it that we've earned by our great merit? Death and hell. These are the things that we earn. These are the things that are properly ours. So if we have anything, we know it's a gift of God. If we have, for instance, a firstborn, then we know it is a gift of God. But that's only just the paradigm. That's only, just the, that's only the framework that shows us all the rest of it. That if we have a firstborn, yes, but whatever we have, in whatever way, it is entirely a gift of God. And so, friends, I would say again, we must reduce our list of things that we think the world owes us and or God owes us. Because God and the world, they don't really owe us anything. And we must increase the list of things that we think that we do not deserve because the list is very long indeed. And the Lord will make us to be a a thankful people if we do that. Thirdly, I, I would say that we need to be teachers because we need to transmit this faith to the next generation. This is the problem, all right? Uh, again, uh, where the church has been distorted and thinking its only mission in life is to get the people outside into making some sort of basic, bare profession of faith, and then that's it, and then move on to the next person, they lose their children. Do you know that? It's true. All right? You, you, you can go and you can check it out, but on the, for the most part, those churches lose their children. Why? Because no emphasis is being placed on the work of transmitting the faith. And all of it is designed in, along a very basic, minimalist idea of what the gospel is, rather than the whole counsel of God. Rather than all the things that God in his goodness knows that children need to understand about God. Right? You need, children need to know just how powerful he is. Children need to know his history of all the good works he's done for his people throughout all of time. And all of these things, he says, you need to transmit to them. And not only that... But it must be done with perfect fidelity. Do you understand what I mean? Nobody has a hi-fi anymore. But if you did, you know what it stands for, right? High fidelity. It's a sound system. For those of you who grew up on, on electronic media, it's a sound system which purports to reproduce the recording, whatever live orchestra or something it might have been, with, with great faithfulness. So it's just like the real thing when you hear it played back. It's a high fidelity. Well, no no recording actually is 100% fidelity. There's always a loss in one kind or another. But the Lord God says, expects, and has put in place the provisions that the faith can and shall be transmitted with 100% perfect fidelity from one generation to another. That's his intent. And that's the thing that he sets for. That's why the words that come out of the father when he speaks to his son, who's answering a simple question of some little child, is it, are they exactly the same words that he himself has just heard from the lips of God? They're the same. Did he dumb it down? No. Did he think of some more interesting way to make it? No. He gave it to them straight, verbatim. Because that's God's plan. Friend, the wisdom of God is to say we need to dumb it down. The wisdom of God is to say take our our kids and send them out of the church and go watch the VeggieTale video. Friends, that is a recipe for making sure that our children are ushered out of the church permanently. We transmit the faith 100% 
in all of its detail, the whole counsel of God. And not only that, we take it the next step and we make them to be teachers. In God's goodness, we pray that the covenant children, before they make their own families, before they move out of our households and make their own lives, that they're in a position not only to know these things, but to teach the next generation. And our object as a church, not just as parents, our object as a church is that we produce a new generation of teachers, not merely of basic Christian professors. And I mean by that those who profess the faith. Yes, we should be praying for Christian professors in that sense as well. We have to make teachers in order that the faith go from one generation to the next in perfect fidelity. Now that obviously applies to parents. It obviously applies to prospective parents as well. Because, you know, the obvious thing, how do you prepare yourself if you wish to be a parent in the future? The obvious thing is in terms of financial situation, and that's fine. Absolutely, men should prepare to, to, uh, to provide for their families. But really, in some sense, it's the least important. Some prepare in terms of their marriage relationship. Absolutely, that's, that's better. Spiritually, even more so, that's essential. A living, growing walk with the Lord, absolutely essential to being a parent. But theologically, not many people prepare in that way. But let me say, if you are either called or you desire to be called of the Lord to be a parent, then you ought to be preparing yourself theologically. Because friends, there is not a single time in which I'm doing family worship in which I sit back and say, well, I guess I didn't need two of those degrees to answer that question. Uh, I I could have spent that time doing something else. I feel like I need every bit of training that I've ever had theologically in order to teach my own children. And, and, and that goes for us all. Okay? We need to prepare ourselves. If God has either called you to be a parent, you know that because you're pregnant, um, or you, you pray that that would be the case, you prepare yourself to, to transmit this faith in its perfect fidelity. And you say, again, Bill, I I don't have even one degree in theology. What am I going to do? Well, you know what? He's given us a catechism. It's great. Uh, That is a wonderful means that the church, it's a good tradition, isn't it? In which all the important points, that's why we say it. You know, why don't we have something that tells us the 50 most important things that every Christian should have? Well, we have the 107 things that every Christian should know on our website. It's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it's a wonderful means for everyone to transmit the faith to the next generation. And then others. By the way, to have all this truth affirmed and reinforced by others in the church, especially if you have no connection to us in terms of family, is hugely important, amazingly powerful. You have no idea the effect that it does. And so do not feel like you've been left out at all. But rather take every opportunity that you have to reinforce things to the young people of this church. It is immensely powerful. Fourthly and finally, as I said, I mentioned Remembrance Day. We have a Remembrance Day coming up, and in God's providence, I'll only be preaching once next Sunday, and it won't be the sermon. Rather, I've preached it tonight, and the subject has come up tonight. Now, let me say that I think it is right that we as a church take part. It has been the decision of the elders that we observe it along with the rest of the country, and I think that is absolutely right. Now, the main emphasis 
is not so much on the men and their deeds, although society should absolutely remember good men who did good things, particularly in giving their lives for their country. And it's sadly a a marker of a society in, in decline when the people that they choose to remember are wicked rather than good and their sacrifices are specious rather than real. But the emphasis isn't so much on that, but rather that God has delivered this nation in answer to prayer, you see. That's the thing. This nation was called very officially by the the king on various uh, occasions in both the First and Second World Wars that there would be deliverance granted, and God in his goodness answered those prayers. And above all things, we should remember this work of deliverance. According to the principles that we find, yes, we do not keep the ceremonial law and we're not legalistic even about the way that we keep Remembrance Day. But it's a good day, a a good concept and one that we can rightly affirm as we give thanks to God in his goodness and deliverance. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful indeed for your great work of redemption, your great work of deliverance in the Exodus. Lord, we are simply not uh, fully cognizant of the magnitude of these things. We know, Lord, that you and your goodness put in place mechanisms so that they would not be forgotten. And how we pray, Lord, that we would continually grow in our knowledge of these things, and particularly in our worship of you for them that our worship would be full of content, that as we pray individually and certainly as a church, and as we, we, we worship in song, that, Lord, our hearts would be filled with the knowledge of all that you have done for your people throughout all of time and of very personal thanksgiving for them as we are one covenant people. These people are our people. They are our forefathers in the faith. And, Lord, you have truly delivered us from Pharaoh. You have truly delivered us from sin and slavery. And Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that we would rightly remember these things, that we would rejoice in the, the, the freedom and forgiveness that is given to us and to transmit this one true and living faith to the next generation, particularly, yes, in terms of our covenant nurture, but even also, Lord, as we seek those outside, uh, we go and find the lost sheep and we tell them the truth. We instruct them and we tell them what God has done. And we pray that you would save them. And Lord, how we pray that we would be good, intelligent beings, that we would be good people uh, doing that which we were created to do, meditating upon the great works of God and giving you thanks and praise for them all. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.